this name change from God Almighty, though, is not based on any achievement, on anything that Abram did, but on God's own goodness and favor. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We praise you for your word that is true, Lord, that we can rest and find hope in it. And so we ask that even in the midst of uh, even in the midst of my frailty this morning, even in the midst of our imperfect understanding of your word, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our minds and eyes and ears uh, to understand and receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It is a privilege that we have. We've been saying this, uh, and I pray that it, it never becomes stale for us. We never take God's word for granted. Uh, we, we remember that every verse in God's word is written for our growth and for our good. Uh, recall to mind Romans 15.4, uh, which says that for whatever was written in former days, that's referring to the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. That is one of the good gifts that God gives us through the study of his word is hope. And we're going to see this today, Lord willing, as we look at the sign of the covenant. We're going through the book of Genesis here on Sundays, and we come to Genesis chapter 17. And we're going to see how the act of circumcision identified Abraham and his descendants as the people of God. And yet, this sign was incomplete. It was imperfect. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel as Paul tells us in Romans 9. And so this points to a new and better covenant, all secured by Christ's blood at the cross. And so I encourage us this morning that we don't ignore God's word, we don't check out or we don't write off God's word thinking that there is no value in studying circumcision and the Lord working through this. And it's my desire, if we just catch a, a small glimpse this morning of the majestic character of who God is and his promises to his people. And as always, let's remember that this is the very word of God that we hold in our hands. Uh, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith puts it this way. It says, the holy scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan in the world. The Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing his will to his people have now ceased. And those former ways was how God spoke to those in the Old Testament through the prophets, through coming and speaking to Abraham himself. But Hebrews reminds us that now he has spoken us to by and through the work of his son on the cross and through the word that's been given to us. And Pastor Pilgrim reminded us two weeks ago of the Apostle Peter's statement uh, that we have a more sure word, 
more sure than hearing God's voice from heaven. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Peter saying that? He did. And so let us approach this more sure word with reverence and humility this morning, trusting that the Lord will grow us. And so before we jump into these verses here, let's be reminded of where we have been up to this point. Uh, Since Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, the promise of God has been that the offspring of Eve would conquer sin and death. And we saw that starting in Genesis 12 with Abram, that God had begun to reveal this promise, that the whole earth would be blessed through the family of Abram. Now, Abram, like all the other patriarchs, prophets, priests, and kings, is very imperfect. He is a great sinner. And we know that reading through the Bible, that the Bible does not whitewash the sins of any of those that we look up to in the Word. In fact, it actually goes out of its way to show us this, to to, uh, show us the the dirty sins of many of those whom we would look up as being the most righteous. And why does he do that? Well, he does that in order to show us God's great favor and and that he bestows on these men and women and that salvation has never been about us. It's not based on our goodness. We are not the hero. No, it's all based on God's righteousness, his love, his sovereignty, his works, his faithfulness. He chooses Abram and pronounces blessings upon him. And what does Abram do? He believes in the Lord. He trusts in the Lord and his word. And it is, that belief is credited to him as righteousness. And Abram is saved. Now, it wasn't, though, all great from there, was it? Nope. Abraham doubts the promises of God. He lies. As we saw last week, he brings another woman into the marriage and has a son that will be born that will not be the son of promise, but the father of the Arab nations. Does Abram still believe God? Yes, he does, but imperfectly, just like all of us. We saw in chapter 15 that God establishes the covenant with Abram, and it's based on God's word. It's based on God's promises. Abram was asleep when God ratified the covenant by walking through the midst, walking in the midst of the cut animals. So we know that the fulfillment of the covenant is based on Almighty God alone. And so as we come to chapter 17, we see God continuing to expand his promises, and he gives the sign of the covenant to Abram. And this is circumcision. This is, what you, this is what sets you apart as my people, as God's people. And so this morning, we're going to focus on the first half of chapter 17, the first 14 verses. And so this is how we're going to break these verses down. Uh, in the first six verses, we see that the Almighty increases Abraham's blessings. And then in just two verses, we'll see the Almighty expands his covenant. And then we'll see that the Almighty seals his covenant. Three points this morning. And so let's read, we'll read verses 1 through 6 as we begin. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. 
And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And so in verse 1 here, we note that there's been a jump in time, about 12 to 13 years since the events of chapter 16. And as far as we know, Abram had had no special visits from God during this time. And that tells us that even during the Old Testament, visits, dreams, and visions were infrequent. Uh, they were not normative and happening all the time. But why the silence, you may ask? Why did God wait for so many years to continue to fulfill the promise of an heir? Well, I'd suggest two possible reasons. Now, this is speculation. Uh, God had no obligation to explain to Abram his perfect timing, and he has no obligation to explain that to us. There's no explicit reference to explain this, but two possible reasons. Uh, first, Psalm 127, 1 and 2 says this. You know these verses. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain to rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. It was a fruitless endeavor that we learned last week that Sarai and Abram went into. They presumed upon the Lord's promises and tried to fulfill it with their own strength. So the gap of time uh, could have been discipline over their sin in this area. But I think the second reason uh, may be more likely. And the second reason is, is that in that God's power would be more magnified as Abram and Sarai got older. Not only would God's power be shown, but Abram, Abraham and Sarah's faith would grow as well. Romans 4 is very clear on this. Paul says, He did not weaken in faith, referring to Abram, when he considered his own body, which was good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, his faith grew through this. And the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 also gives us insight into how God acts. Moses said, For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond for free. God works in and through us, even in the midst of our weakness, when our power is gone. He did that with Abram and Sarai. Of course, we know that he did that with Paul as well. As Paul was battling the thorn in the flesh. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. Well, as verse 1 continues, we see that God reveals himself to Abram with a new name. He says, I am God Almighty. That's El Shaddai in Hebrew. And if you're old enough, you may know the Amy Grant song that was very popular, uh, that was really popular with this title. Uh, but according to the Reformation Study Bible, this divine name may signify God's universal dominion, that he is in control and sovereign over everything. It's the name of God most used in the book of Job, and it's used throughout Genesis, often when speaking about God's covenant promises of the offspring that will come. 
Brothers and sisters, the God that we worship is enough. What does that mean? It means that he is enough in himself. He is self-sufficient. He has everything and he needs nothing. And this also means that he is enough to us. So if you are in Christ, you have everything you need in him. Several verses speak to this. Psalm 16, 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then jumping to the New Testament, 2 Peter 1.3, a verse that we quote often here. His divine power, the almighty power of God, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God is enough. Our God is El Shaddai. And so as God Almighty continues his greeting, he says to Abram, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And the Hebrew word for blameless means to be without blemish or to have integrity, to be complete and whole. And so there's just a couple things to note here. Uh, first, we already know that Abram is saved. He was justified. He was declared righteous based on his belief in chapter 15. Now the Lord is commanding Abram, live in light of who you are. Walk in obedience before me. Abram was not perfect. We've seen that and we will see it again. But Abram's life has been changed. He now desires to love and worship and obey the Lord. And it's the same for us because we've been declared righteous. We have been given a new heart that comes with new desires demonstrated in loving obedience to our Savior. And so it is no problem for God to say, Abram, walk in obedience to me. Be circumcised. Just as it is no, uh, no problem with God saying to us as believers in the new co covenant, be baptized come to the Lord's table. Live in light of who you are in Christ. Live as a Christian would. And the pattern of many New Testament epistles reminds us of this truth. Romans, Ephesians, 1 Peter. The beginning is doctrine, right? This is who God is, and this is what he has done. And then the second half is now, okay, because of who you are in Christ, because of of what God has done in saving you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be imitators of God. Walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And with Abram, we learned earlier that this is not a mutual covenant, right? This is an unconditional covenant. God didn't say to Abram, okay, you come halfway, Abram, and then I'll come the rest of the way and we'll meet in the middle. No, this is unconditional. God sovereignly has given the covenant. He saved Abram. He's giving him grace and faith and a desire for obedience. Now, was this sign of the covenant in circumcision obeyed perfectly throughout Israelite history? No, not even close. And of course, as we look to the Mosaic covenant, 
in the giving of the law, of course, we know that the Israelites did not follow God's law perfectly. In fact, rejected God's law so many times. But because this is an unconditional covenant, will God abdicate on his promises? No. God will keep his promises. We're reminded that he is faithful even when we are faithless. And just a final note on this verse that Matthew Henry says that a continual trust in God's all-sufficiency will have a great influence on our desire to walk blameless before him. When we consider the all-powerful nature of God, that he is enough and that he is enough for us, that gives us freedom and joy to walk with him, knowing that he will always keep his promises, even when we fail. He's true to Abram. He is true to us. Now, verses 3 through 6 here, they reiterate uh, God, both reiterate and they expand on God's blessings to Abram. So we see here, as Abram falls on his face, that's showing humility, reverence, and awe, that God repeats the promise that he will be the father of many nations. And we've spoken about this before already in our, in our study in Genesis, that not only will this include the lines of Ishmael and Isaac, millions upon millions of people, but this also includes all those who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, all of us who are in Christ. And in verse 5, we have this name change that we have been waiting for. God changes Abram's name from exalted father to father of a multitude. And in doing this, God gave great honor to Abraham. John MacArthur says that this reflected Abraham's new relationship to God as well as his new identity based on God's promise of an offspring. Now, if we think more closer to our time, we may think of the knighting ceremony where a king or queen dubs a valiant soldier, Sir Galahad, or something similar to that. Although now, if you notice, it's mostly musicians and actors and celebrities that get knighted. Um, but nonetheless, uh, that ceremony bestows honor on an individual because of some sort of achievement that they have done. But this name change from God Almighty, though, is not based on any achievement, on anything that Abram did, but on God's own goodness and favor. And there are, are of course, other instance, uh, instances in Scripture where God changed someone's name. We know and we'll see next week that God is going to change Sarai's name. We think of the Apostle Paul. We think of uh, uh, Peter as well. But did you know that in heaven, every believer will have a new name? This is really interesting. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, this is what it says. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The hidden manna refers to the spiritual bread, the spiritual life in Christ. The white stone is very interesting. The white stone was a ticket that was given to athletes in ancient times that would give them access into the, uh, the winner's celebration. And the new name here could very well be a personal message from Christ to the one he loves. So personal that only the person who receives it knows what it is. We will have a new name in heaven. 
It's incredible. Well, God gave Abram a new name to show him honor, but he also gave him a new name to encourage him in his faith because we see it even in the meaning of his name. You will be the father of many nations. We know that God calls into existence the things that do not exist. We read that in Romans 4, verse 17. And Abraham was at this point only the father of one, but that was going to change, and it did change. God calls into existence the things that do not exist. And so even in the meaning of Abraham's name, we have the promise of God to encourage him. So that's our first point that the Lord increases Abraham's blessings. Next, we see that the Almighty expands his covenant. And so as we come to the second point here, we see four things in verses 7 and 8 that show us the character of God and grace both toward Abraham and to us. So verse 7 says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So four things. First, we see in verse 7 that the covenant is established. What does that mean? It means it's fixed and firm. It's based on the power of Almighty God. Secondly, as we've mentioned before, the covenant was not made just to Abraham only, but to his offspring. And like I just said, of course, this includes his immediate children of Isaac and Jacob, but also to all those who are his spiritual seed. Every believer. Uh, even Ephesians 2, uh, verse 12 says this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this covenant is established. It concerns many offspring. And thirdly, we see in both in 7 and 8 that it's referred to as an everlasting covenant. And it's everlasting, once again, because it is tied to God's character. It's tied to who he is. And Abraham could trust that this covenant would endure forever because God does not change. But we have these important words tied to the everlasting nature of the covenant, both in verse 7 and verse 8. At the, uh, almost the end of verse 7, he says that to be, he'll say that God is going to be God to you and to your offspring. And then in verse 8, he says it again, I will be their God. Now, as with all covenants that we've talked about, there, are, there is a legal element to this, but God's covenant relationship with his people is so far beyond any type of legal arrangement. It's a fellowship. It's a relationship. It's communion with the God of the universe. It's not just some cold here, just sign on the dotted line and we'll be good kind of agreement. Not at all. Matthew Henry says, what God is himself, that means who he is in his character, that he will be to his people. His wisdom theirs to guide and counsel them. His power theirs to protect and support them. His goodness theirs to supply and comfort them. That's so encouraging that who God is in his character is extended 
to his people. So this is an everlasting covenant. And then, I should have put it underneath the shirt. <laughs> well, the fourth and final consideration in these verses is that is about the land of Canaan. And it says here that the land of Canaan was to be an everlasting possession. Now, this had an immediate fulfillment in what was to come with Joshua and Saul and David. But I believe that this also is much more than just the Israelites enjoying the physical land. It goes beyond to an everlasting inheritance in heaven, enjoyed by everyone who is of the spiritual seed of Abraham. Just as Abraham's offspring is much more than Isaac and Jacob, so the land promise is much more than just the surrounding area that surrounds Jerusalem. Uh, Hebrews 11 explains this well. So let's hold your place in Genesis. Let's jump to Hebrews 11 just for a moment here. We're going to read verses 8 through 16. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Here's our first glimpse. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So he's looking forward to a city built by God himself. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. Here it is. That is a heavenly one. Brothers and sisters, we know that this world is not our home. Like the, the, the gospel song says, we're just passing through. This is true for Abraham. It's true for us. But as it is, they desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be, be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What did Jesus say? I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. This is a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign, as the lyrics go from by faith that we sing. There were glimpses, there were glimpses of this city in the reigns of King David and King Solomon, but it was not perfect, and it could not be perfect until all is fulfilled with Christ and his kingdom. We look for a better country. We look forward to the heavenly city, the heavenly country, and by the nature of our almighty God and his promises, it will come to pass. Amen, it will. Back to Genesis 17. 
And we'll go to our final verses here this morning. The Almighty expands his covenant, and now the Almighty seals his covenant in verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So our last point, we see that Almighty God seals his covenant with the sign of circumcision. And this is how it was described in Romans 4.11. He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs of the new covenant. So the question is, does circumcision, circumcision directly correlate with baptism? Should we be baptizing our babies instead of dedicating them? Well, we'll look at this question in a little bit. But first, let's look at the details in our text. Uh, without getting into too much graphic detail here, we know that the cutting away of the foreskin involves blood. And this cutting away points ultimately to the work of Christ. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, circumcision wasn't a practice that was original to the Israelites. It was practiced by some other pagan nations as well. But the difference was how God took this pagan practice and made it entirely new. John MacArthur says that circumcision was symbolic of the need to cut away sin and be cleansed. It was commanded only for the males because the male organ carried the seed that produced depraved sinners. Thus, circumcision symbolized the need for a profoundly deep cleansing to reverse the effects of depravity. And so it was symbolic of the need for our hearts, as we know, our hearts to be circumcised, our hearts to be made new. Our text says it was to be done when the baby was eight days old. And so this is in God's perfect timing, uh, both for the healing to take place. Babies at eight days old, they're in a good place to be able to do that. Uh, and possibly so they could have one Sabbath pass over them. But also we see in verse 12 that this was not only for the Israelites, but for every male, the text says, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. So there were Gentiles that were included in this as well. And what does this show us? It shows us that God's favor, even on the Gentiles, who would be brought into God's family in the future by faith through Christ. All of this points to Christ, brothers and sisters. I hope this is coming. Maybe you're understanding this in a new way this morning. 
Galatians 3.14 says that, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now our text though ends today with a very serious warning, doesn't it? Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this shows the seriousness of how God looked at this covenant. Matthew Henry, again, he says that to show contempt for circumcision was to show contempt for the covenant. Any parent who did not circumcise their boys was, in effect, removing themselves from God's blessings of being part of God's chosen people. And we even have an example of this. Uh, in the book of Exodus, the seriousness of this nature in chapter 4 with Moses. Moses disobeyed God in this area. And verse 24 says, uh, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. That's incredible. Then Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, she took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of death to me. Very serious. And then it says, So he, God, left, Mo, or left Moses alone. He spared him. So it seems, and just, just two little verses tell us this, and then it goes on. It seems that Zipporah understood the seriousness of this situation and acted. And you can see the seriousness in her voice and how she responds to her husband. You're bringing death into our family. It was very, very close. Moses should have stepped up and been obedient and done this, but he did not, and it almost brought destruction to his family. So it's clear here that there would be divine judgment on those who did not obey the Lord. But again, brothers and sisters, even this divine judgment points to Christ. Even this verse of warning. Those who did not participate would be cut off and put under judgment. And yet Christ himself was cut off and took on all of God the Father's divine judgment so that we would be saved. Isaiah 53 verse 8 speaks clearly to this. It says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Points to Christ. Well, friends, next week, Lord willing, we're going to continue in chapter 17. And we're going to see God's blessings to Sarai, the promise of Isaac's birth, and Abram's obedience in circumcising his household. But before we come to the Lord's table this morning, there are two questions that I want to consider with you this morning. First, a practical question and then a theological question. The practical question for you young parents, and you probably already made this decision already, but the question is, should you circumcise your boys? And then the theological question is, does baptism replace circumcision? So circumcision today Circumcision in the New Covenant is a matter of Christian freedom and conscience. Believers are not commanded to circumcise their male children. 
Uh, and in fact, we know in the New Testament, the New Testament is very clear that circumcision plays no part in our salvation. In the early church, there were some who were saying that, yes, you needed to be circumcised and believe in the work of Christ. But the Jerusalem council came together and they, they soundly rejected that as a heresy. That was not true. And so parents, you have the freedom to choose either way. Now, I personally lean towards the fact that circumcision is a good thing to do purely from the fact that it was one of God's good commands to his people. Uh, And Jewish women, which is very interesting, some talk about possible health benefits of circumcision. Jewish women, this is a fact, you can look this up, historically have the lowest rates of cervical cancer out of everybody. And that's uh, been tied to that so many of the males are circumcised. It's very interesting. But the bottom line is uh, you can make either choice and have a good conscience before the Lord. Now onto the theological question, and we're going to go a little deep with this. Uh, Our Presbyterian brothers and sisters uh, and some others, they would point to a correlation between circumcision and baptism as a reason to baptize babies. They would say that baptism replaces circumcision. Now there's, of course, several reasons why we believe that baptism is only for believers, and I'll give them to you quickly. Uh, The first reason, every time in the New Testament where we see a command and an example of baptism, it's the requirement of faith always comes before it. And so since infants are incapable of faith, they are not to be baptized. Secondly, uh, we have no examples of infant baptism in all the Bible. Now, some would point to, the Presbyterians would point to the three household baptisms that are mentioned in the book of Acts and and inferring, saying that, oh, well, it's talking about household, so there must have been babies there and they must have been baptized. Well, I would say that's reading into the text. Uh, We have three of them, household of Lydia, the household of the Philippian jailer, and the household of Stephanus. Uh, No mention is made of infants. And in fact, in the case of the Philippian jailer, Luke says very clearly that they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So what does that tell us? That tells us that those who were baptized in the household could understand the word of the Lord. Number three, Paul in Colossians explains that baptism is an act done through faith. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. So in baptism, you were raised uh, up with Christ through faith. And this is your own faith. This is not your parents' faith. If it is not through faith, if it is not an outward expression of what has happened inside of us, it's not baptism. And then fourthly, Uh, The Apostle Peter, in his letter, he defined baptism in this way, that it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he ties baptism. Baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Again, it's an outward act, an expression of our inner confession and prayer to God for cleansing, where we've come to God, we've trusted in Christ alone. Give me a new heart. And that's one That's something that the one being baptized does, not, again, not his parents. And so these are some scriptural reasons why baptism is only for believers. But in regards to our text today, so the logic goes like this, and follow with me. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant, and all male babies were circumcised and considered part of the covenant. 
The parents trusted in God's promises that these children would come to true faith in God when they got older. This is the argument from the Presbyterian side. Now, for us in the New Covenant, since baptism is a sign of the New Covenant, we should baptize our babies, and we too will trust in the promises of God that as they get older, they will come to true faith and repentance in Christ. In the meantime, as part of being a part of a Christian family, they will receive God's blessings. So the main issue here is a proper understanding of who true Israel was in the Old Covenant and who makes up the church today. Now, I got a lot of this following information from John Piper. He's got a great article on this. I can send it to you. But Paul makes it clear in Romans 9, 6 through 8. He says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they, all, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. We've talked about this in our Roman study. You can go back and listen to that. that. Just because you were born, you are a physical descendant, you're related to Abraham, that doesn't save you. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Those who have true faith and trust in the Lord. And so there was a divide in the old covenant between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. Circumcision didn't save the Israelites, just like keeping all the commandments didn't save them. What saved them was their faith in God. And so the covenant people in the Old Testament were mixed. They were all physical Israelites who were circumcised. But within that national ethnic group, there was a remnant of true Israel. There was a group of Israelites that were truly saved based on their faith in God. And this is the way God designed it to be. He bound himself by covenant to an ethnic people and their descendants. He gave them all the sign of the covenant, circumcision, but he worked within that ethnic group to call out a true people for himself. And so that's the people that made up the old covenant. So then looking at us in the new covenant, who makes up the church? Who is in the new covenant? Well, Galatians 4, verses 22 through 28, help us with the answer. Paul says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, that's Ishmael, born to Hagar, and one by the free woman, that's Isaac, born to Sarah. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. And then down in verse 28, this is what he says. And he says, And you, brethren, who's the brethren? The church are like Isaac, the children of promise. The brethren are the church. So the church is not to be a mixed heritage like Abraham's descendants. The church is not to be like Israel, where there's a physical multitude and then there's a small remnant of true saints in it. No, the church is saints by definition. The church is only made up of saints by believers. And we see that the church continues this remnant. As verse 28 says, the church is like Isaac, children of promise. So, the people of the covenant in the Old Testament were made up of Israel according to the flesh, an ethnic, national, religious people containing both children of the flesh and the children of God. So therefore, it makes sense that circumcision was given to all the children of the flesh. But the people of the new covenant, the church of Jesus, is being built in a fundamentally different way. The church is not based on any national or ethnic distinctives, but on the reality of faith alone, by grace alone, through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So we're about to take communion together. And the church, we know, is the new covenant community in Christ. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant is the spiritual work of God that he does to put his spirit within us, to write his law on our hearts, cause us to walk in his ways. It's a spiritually authentic community. And so unlike the old covenant community, it is defined by true spiritual life and faith. And so having these things is what it means to belong to the new covenant. Therefore, to give the sign of the covenant, baptism, to those who are merely children of the flesh, our babies, and who give no evidence of the new birth or the presence of the Spirit or the law written on their hearts or of the faith in Christ, what that does is it contradicts the meaning of the new covenant community and it goes backwards in redemptive history. Amen. Now, I realize that we went pretty deep with that. <laughs> you may have questions. Uh, I can, we can talk more about it. I can send you this great article that John Piper wrote. Um, but I believe it's important that we defend our stance on why we only baptize believers. Uh, and it's relevant to our text this morning on circumcision. And it's also relevant because we have the amazing privilege to go later and to witness baptisms. Praise the Lord. And so we want to encourage you again to come this evening. Well, as we close our time, uh, let's prepare our hearts uh, to come to the Lord's table this morning. And we must say that just like baptism, uh, the Lord's table is only open for those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone. If you have not done that, we would ask that you would abstain this morning, that you would not take the elements, because this is not just, this is not a dead religious tradition. We believe that Christ himself is present with us as we remember his work at Calvary and proclaim his death until he comes again. You must be born again, and we would love to share that with you if you are unsure what that means. The Lord's table is the highlight of our time together this morning. The Lord himself has invited us to a meal in fellowship with him and with all those who have been redeemed and adopted into his family. So we're going to sing together as we pass the elements. Please hold on to them, and we'll take uh, them together in a moment. And take the time as we're singing, as we're again reflecting on the work of Christ. Consider your heart. Come before the Lord in, in thankfulness and gratitude. So let's pray, and then we'll sing together. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for even the deep truths of your word that we can dig into this morning, Lord. And we most of all praise you for how this sign of the covenant ultimately points to you, Lord Jesus, and the work that you accomplished in going to the cross and being cut off from the land of the living, but also in bringing those who were far off, the Gentiles who were alienated and cut off from the Commonwealth of Israel, thank you for bringing us into your family, Lord. We give praise to you, alone, to you alone, and we count it such a great privilege to come to your table this morning to praise you, to remember your work on our behalf. The perfect life you lived and the death you died, taking on the full wrath of God to be the propitiation for our sin, to be the satisfaction, the appeasement, Lord, we, we sit and we sing here today only because of that work that is done. We love you, Lord.
and thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.